Well, if you were with us uh, two weeks ago, uh, you started an outline if you're taking notes, so if you have that, if you're one of the two people that still have that, go ahead and pull that out. Thank you. Uh, but the ushers have that outline if you don't have it and you want it. Uh, but we started two weeks ago, uh, so just raise your hands right there. Uh, and uh, we'll be using that if you want to take notes. Uh, and notice that the, and there's a couple behind you too that you missed you guys. Uh, notice that the pages are numbered so that when we're done with this series on marriage and the family, you can have a whole set of notes. So um, keep those for the next four to six weeks uh, because we're going to cover, right now we're going over biblical principles of family. Uh, we're going to cover some biblical principles of marriage and some biblical principles of parenting. Uh, and touching on a lot of other issues along the way uh, for those uh, that may not feel like they fall into one of those categories. But uh, everyone here is at least a child, right? So that's what category we're all in. Uh, everyone here has parents or has parents, so there's another category. So. Please pull that up, Dave. And see where we left off. So we started looking at uh, the uh, the fact that the family today is under attack, uh, and that perhaps even the evil one, even Satan himself, may know some things about the family uh, that we don't stop to think of that we should. And this is all reviewed. So if you weren't with us two weeks ago, I'm going to fly through. Uh, these first eight things so we can get to uh, where we left off. So you may miss something here. Uh, you can always check the church website. Uh, I know Dave posts uh, the outline and stuff on the church website. So uh, we talked, we saw that the family is the basic building block of every other social unit and institution in society. Uh, that God created the family before He created the church. Before he created the nation of Israel, before he created human government, he created the family. And what is interesting is, before children arrived on the scene, there was a family. That Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, they were a family. And uh, that was without children, and then they were also a family with children. But, as we know, what happens with our children as they grow older or what eventually does every parent hope for that they leave and students. But that is by God's plan and God's design. It's that TPT principle. Temporary, permanent, temporary. The husband uh, or my relationship with my parents is on. I can hear it. Uh, my relationship with my parents is temporary because I grow up and I leave. Then I get married. My relationship with my wife is permanent. It's to last my entire lifetime. Then we have children, and that relationship is temporary in the sense of my children will grow up uh, and leave. Uh, and two of my children are now married. Uh, and the third child desperately longs to be married. So, uh, and all the single ladies. Anyway, you've seen pictures of him, he looks good. Because he looks like me. No, he looks like you. 
That's why we do it. We saw too that the command uh, there to multiply, replenish, and fill, and subdue the earth in Genesis was given to a family unit. It's really important uh, to see the charge that God gave the family. These are reasons why family is so important, according to Scripture. And by the way, uh, a lot of times we say family is important, but maybe not for the right reasons, uh, not from God's perspective. Uh, and sometimes also we put the importance of the family before the importance of the things of God. Uh, and that certainly isn't God's intention. Uh, we know that the family is unique and irreplaceable in God's program. The family is unique and irreplaceable in God's program. He created the man and the woman. He created the family unit uh, to be the security anchor for all of society. Uh, and as the family goes, so goes society. Society ebbs and flows up and down according to the strength of the family. And when I say those words and use these terms, I'm always referring to the biblical pattern of family as found in Scripture. We know the family is of utmost importance to God's program because God starts His revelation to man with extended teaching about marriage and family. In other words, revelation meaning God reveals Himself. Through his word. And when did he begin revealing himself through his words? With the first family. And I don't mean in the White House, I mean the first family. In the garden when he created it. He began to reveal himself with his spoken word. He gave them uh, commandments, right? He gave them do's and don'ts. Not only that, what's so interesting is... It says that God would often come in the cool of the evening and walk in the garden with the man and the woman. Isn't that awesome? And we know who that was. If they saw God, if they were walking with God, who was that? The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the person that he was before he came to Bethlehem of the day. The scripture is clear. It says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only begotten, the Son of God, has revealed God the Father. So anytime you see God in any visible form in the Old Testament, it is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ would walk in the garden, having a relationship, a fellowship, a, a communication with the man and the woman. He was revealing himself. And by the way, that is almost a breathtaking truth to grasp that God desires to be in a relationship with you. God desires to be in a relationship with you and with me and with our family. That's one of the reasons He created us. He created us for His glory, but He didn't create us to just step away and leave us to ourselves. He created us so that we could be in a relationship to Him. The family is also about most important to God's program because everything else grows out of the family and is dependent upon it. That's where we get our start in life, right? Into the family in which we have been born. We're tempted to say, I would like a retake, please. 
not sure God and God made a mistake. He says, right here on my application, very wealthy, popular, loving family. That's not what I got. Uh, I would like to visit the return counter. Um, like at Christmas, you return and say, here's the address, and then you return it. I should return my family. But in the providence of the sovereignty of God, you were born into the exact family that God wanted you to be born into. And, no matter if it was good or bad, easy or struggle, you were put into that family, number one, to bring glory to God and to the call of Jesus Christ. And number two, to learn to serve others before you serve yourself. In any and every family, we get our beginning there. The family is the utmost importance to God's program because distortions and deficiencies in our families will produce the same in every other human institution. In other words, once again, as the family rises and falls, as the family struggles or is strengthened, it affects the greater culture. Everything really does begin in the home. And that's why it's so important, not just for ourselves and our homes, but for the broader context of society. When your kids go off to school, they are taking their home life with them. When you go off to work, you're taking your home life with you. You probably tell your kids the same thing we told our kids when we sent them off for, uh, what is it, six to eight weeks for Operation Barnabas. Serve the Lord, grow along, remember you're representing your church, and please don't embarrass us. But, right? Our homes represent uh, or impact the culture because we represent our homes. Then we looked, we took quite a bit of time looking at the fact that the family is important to God's program because God uses the family as a means of reflecting the communicable attributes of his nature. What do you mean by that? Communicable is the word communicate. God communicates something about himself in the structure of the family. We spent a lot of time there talking about how he created the male and female. And he said it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a suitable uh, helper for him and he makes the woman. So in that whole teaching in the early chapters of Genesis, we see that the man and the woman are two individuals and yet the scriptures say they come together to create what? And the two shall become one flesh. Meaning, literally, it's the picture there of two things that are welded together and impossible to take apart without breaking or destroying. And in that unique distinctiveness of male and female coming together in one flesh, there is a picture of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's the distinctiveness of the complementariness of the man and the woman together as one, and the Father, Son, and Spirit together as three in one. So you see the picture of marriage is really important because it gives a testimony, it gives a picture of God. Yeah? Some of us were already sweating bullets, so I don't know. I'm in trouble here. My marriage is supposed to be a picture of God. Ooh, what kind of picture? What kind of picture? Not just marriage either, but the home, as we'll see. The relationship between parent and child. Uh, between siblings. All of those things are representing a picture communicating something about God and His nature. But I say in all that because we do struggle 
But I praise God for His grace and His mercy uh, in our marriages and in our families. It's not working. I'm pretty loud though. You guys hear me back there or no? Yeah, today you hear me. I don't know what happened. Oh, wait, that's a different speech. Okay. It's interesting. I guess some didn't want to hear the message today. So I know that's none of you. I was thinking of the, the evil one. All right. All right. Let's move along here. Oh, new stuff, right? You got blanks now for this? Okay. Number eight. There were 12 things that we're looking at in this opening series of foundation uh, for family. We know that the family is of utmost importance to God's program because God uses the family as a means of of, uh, reflecting the nature of his relationships with people. So in other words, in the structure of the family unit, we see a picture or get an idea of how God relates to people. The way the husband and wife relate to each other tells us something about how God relates to us. The way a parent and a child relates to each other or relate to one another gives us a picture of how God relates to us. That's tiny and I'm half blind. Okay, that's better up there. If you want to turn there to Ephesians 5, I think that's an important passage. Uh, I just hit some of the highlights on the slide there. Uh, But Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22 This might be what you would call the classical passage on marriage. And we don't have time to uh, exegete and study this out the whole way. But we do want to pick up some principles uh, for what we're uh, discussing right now. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Those are two very important words there uh, for marriage. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Notice the connectedness here in the husband-wife relationship, in the relationship of Jesus to you as Christians in the church. Being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. At a later date, we'll talk about what this means to be subject to uh, or the the uh, teaching of biblical submission. Very misunderstood uh, by the world today and misunderstood by a lot of Christians. And I hate to disappoint you guys, but I'll tell you up front, it doesn't mean that you're the boss uh, or, the, or the dictator or the king. I'm king of the world. No, that's not what that means. I'm just preparing you because I don't want you to go into shock in a couple weeks when we talk about that. Verse 25. And husbands, wrap Let us wrap our minds around this. And guys that are single but want to be married someday, you need to start practicing this and letting this sink in right now. Husbands, love your wives. And just the men, read the rest of the verse with me. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. And let's not be generic. Let's not be broad. Let's be specific. Husbands, how can you 
sacrificially love your wives. And guys, you need to practice that when you're dating. And I'll say this a million times until you're sick of it. Guys and gals that are single, any age. Every date, possible mate. That is the slogan for a Christian who is dating. The only reason to be dating is because you want to be married. There is really no such thing in God's plan for dating just for fun. You're dating with the intention of finding a mate. And so the best thing a single person can do who longs to be married is to prepare yourself while you're single to be the kind of spouse that God wants you to be. You work on that godly character because like attracts like. If you are a godly young person, you will attract another godly young person. If you are an ungodly young person, you will attract an ungodly person. So you need to work on that before marriage, before engagement. But sacrifice, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is Christ in the church. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives, just like they would their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves who? Wow. Wow. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why? Because of the one flesh relationship. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall be called one. You're so closely united. You're so aligned in what you love, what you pursue, uh, what you cherish, what you're doing, how you're living. It's as if you were just one person. So when you hate your wife, you're actually hating yourself. When you're harming your wife, you're actually harming yourself. Because if she's harmed, you're going to feel the impact of that, whether directly or indirectly. Verse 29. This is an anti-self-esteem verse. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Everyone nourishes and cherishes it. Just like Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What's the point? We're talking about foundations of marriage and family. You know, marriage was intended by God to be a picture of. Of Jesus' relationship to us as believers. Marriage is a symbol on earth of Christ's love and sacrifice for the church. That's how important it is. So if marriage gets tweaked or changed or reformed or reframed, it's going to impugn the image of God. In all this debate about marriage and marriage equality and all this stuff, it is at heart a theological issue. Not at heart a social issue or a biological issue, which it is. But ultimately, this whole battle is a theological issue because the image of God is at stake. And that's where I would argue from as a Christian. 
if I got into conversations on that whole thing. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17 tell us that the parent-child relationship also reflects the image of God. He says there, we've been adopted by the Spirit as sons of God, and God allows us to cry out. It says, Abba, Father, there in Romans, but that word literally means Daddy, which is the most intimate, affectionate term, right, between a child and a parent. I hear it all the time around here, and I love it. You hear the little ones running around. Sometimes it's a good daddy. Thank you, daddy, I love you. And sometimes it's a bad daddy. Daddy, I love you. But it's still the... But it's still the word. Not well, maybe that doesn't ever happen around here. No, no. But still, God allows us to use the most intimate term to call him our daddy. He says, For we are children of God. Now Second Corinthians six is interesting. It also carries something very important uh, for single people to consider uh, as they're looking for a mate. Says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of the living God, and God has said, Be separate from unclean things, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, the whole context of that passage is how believer and unbeliever don't go together. And really, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're looking for a mate, What's the very first thing you're looking for? Someone else who is a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And I know that the young people may get sick of hearing this, but I don't care. It's my responsibility. If the person is not a born again believer, then you never have the first date. It's not an option. It's not an option. And I hear all the time about missionary dating. But, oh, I think they're really close to accepting the Lord. She's getting really close. I just know it. And, and I've got her going to church with me now. And, or if I'm not dating her and sharing Christ with her, who's, who, who's going to do it? Those are all just excuses. God's word is clear. What fellowship has light with darkness? Those two things don't go together. The marriage relationship is so close. We already saw it, right? For this reason, say it with me. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. One. It's two lives coming together into just one. And he's not talking about only the physical relationship. That's just a reflection of the spiritual relationship between the husband and wife. So God says it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense for a believer to pursue an unbeliever for marriage. Now, if you're here today and you're a born-again follower of Jesus and you're married to someone who's not, no fear. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. And you're fine. Paul talks about this issue in Corinthians. Uh, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 3, that there are ways to bring glory to God. Sometimes two people get married, then one person comes to saving faith. You know, sometimes that's the situation. Or sometimes, like with my own in-laws, my father-in-law, who's with the Lord now, he was in the Navy, uh, was released from the Navy, he, was, he had fallen far away from the Lord. And then he married my mother-in-law, who at the time was not a believer. Well, then he came under conviction after marriage. 
and wanted to come back to the Lord. And then my mother-in-law ended up getting saved. Uh, and then my wife and my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, who, by the way, all three of those, Lisa, her brother and sister, all got saved at a CEF Good News Club. Uh, so I'm thankful for CEF. So, but God can work in any marriage, but his ideal, his plan is if you're single and you desire to be married and you're dating to be married, don't go on that first date even if that other person is not a follower of Jesus. Then you will know that you have God's blessing. You know you'll have God's blessing. Okay, is that strong enough? Okay, ready to move on? All right. Wipe the sweat off your brow, Benny. You'll be okay. All right. All right. John 1.12, to all who receive Christ as Savior, he gives the right to become children of God. To those who believe in Christ's name, children born not of flesh and blood or by the will of man, but born of God. So once again, we see the parent-child relationship reflects in some way the relationship that God has with people. And that's why it's so important. That's why it's so important, mom and dad. The way that we raise our kids, the way that we interact with our kids, the way that we instruct our kids, it's important primarily and ultimately because it's a reflection of the way that God interacts with us and with others. Yeah, it's heavy duty. Some of you, some of you have looks on your face like, oh, that's really heavy, heavy. Yeah, it is heavy. It is. I have those moments. How many of you parents have those moments where if you're alone and you start thinking about things, it just gets really heavy. It's like, oh, I've got to get out of this place. It is, it is serious. But once again, we can turn to God's grace and we can turn to God's mercy. I know I'm probably the only parent in this room that's made mistakes in my parenting, right? So, ooh, a lot of wide eyes. Ooh, okay. We make mistakes, right? But you know what? God's grace is greater than our sin. Uh, and we can have godly parents. In fact, God's grace is so great that a young person can come out of an ungodly home and be a godly person. We know that. So there's no need to fear. All right. This is probably where we'll end today. Hopefully we'll get through this whole point. The family is of utmost importance to God's program because of the Bible's teaching about the negative impact that an ungodly family member can have on all the other family members. We don't live just to ourselves in a family. Every decision a husband makes affects his wife and the kids. Every decision a wife makes affects her husband and her kids. Young people, every decision and choice you make affects your mom and dad. Decisions we make affect our siblings. Uh, it, it can ripple through. And it can have effects into further generations, which we'll see in a moment. Proverbs 21, a couple verses there. It's better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a contentious woman. I added, or man. Because that is the principle there. And of course, in Old Testament times, they lived in the Mediterranean. The top of the house was considered an outdoor space. So that's the picture there. It's better to go set up camp in the corner up on the roof than to live in a house with a contentious, meaning argumentative, surly, uh, harsh, irritable husband or wife. An excellent wife is a crown for her husband. 
But she who shames him is like rottenness in her bones. The wise woman or man builds her house, but the foolish tear it down with her or his own hands. Talking about the family, the house, and how the way we behave and the choices we make can be very destructive and can have a negative impact on everyone. Right? And some of us have gone through times like that. Have gone through hard times where a loved one has made a very bad decision. Uh, or maybe a loved one just has a very bad disposition all the time. I think I was in a bad mood for 10 years once. Is that long for a husband? Is that long? Oh, I think that's kind of short for a husband. We've been married 28, so 18 good, 10 grouchy. That's pretty good. Oh, wait, isn't there a verse about uh, seeing your reflection in the water? Oh, okay, that's another proverb. Okay. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does it mean when it says fathers provoke their children to anger? We as fathers can provoke our children to anger in a lot of different ways. Harshness. Unrealistic expectations. Uh, Sometimes we give off the vibe that we're being irritated and we don't want to be bothered. Um, We can also provoke our children by being inconsistent. You know, my dad, we would have to gauge his mood before we approached him. Uh, My dad was a he had a great sense of humor. If you think I'm funny, I got it from my dad. If you don't think I'm funny, well... You could take it up with him. He's with the Lord. So, But, you know, he grew up in a huge country hillbilly family. Tons of kids. I think 13 kids. Left home when he was 17 because his dad was abusive. He lied about his age and joined the Navy. He was released from the Navy. He met my mom when he was stationed in Bremerton, Washington. He took her back to Indiana. And then he worked at a foundry. Uh, and then he drove a truck. So he was a typical Midwestern blue-collar guy. Dirty jokes, beer drinking, John Wayne movies, and greasy popcorn. Bless my dad. Oh, but he, he got irritated so easily. So easily. The worst, the worst was those Saturdays when they, for some reason, would take us kids to the grocery store. I hated that. Because my mom and the sisters would go in and get to look at all the food, which, you know, I would love that. The boys had to sit in the hot car with my dad and wait. My gosh. It would take my dad about three minutes to fall asleep. It would take us about two minutes to start fighting and arguing. Usually all we saw was a hand, you know, coming back over the front seat. But we had to kind of gauge our dad's mood. When we approached him, is he grouchy? Should I ask him now? Should I wait till later? Well, he's always grouchy, so just ask him. That really provokes children. That creates angry children. And remember, anger doesn't always manifest itself just in outward bursts. We say you're provoking your children to anger. Children can, a child can be an angry child and internalize all of that. 
And it turns into anxiety uh, and insecurity uh, and really hopelessness. So the inconsistency of a father can provoke his children to anger, can create angry children. Well, and some parents will say, some fathers will say, well, I'm not being harsh, I'm just making him tough. And the Bible says, no, you're not. Well, yes, you are. You're making him wicked tough. You're not making him righteous tough. And there's a huge difference. Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. You know, unbiblical, ungodly fathering can create a sense of hopelessness in your children. Maybe we underestimate, maybe we forget, because when we become adults, we forget what it's like to be a child. I can barely remember last week. I don't even remember. Do you ever stop and try to remember kindergarten? I do that sometimes to test myself. I was six years old. I can't, all I can remember is taking a nap and playing with the monkeys in a barrel. Do you ever play with those, the monkeys that hook together? That's all I remember. It's hard to, it's hard to remember what it was like to be a child. But the impact and the influence that God says, especially mom and dad, but here we're looking at fathers, has a tremendous influence and impact on how our children grow up. Go to Exodus chapter 20. We read from there this morning. But we want to explain that passage a little bit. We're talking about influence. The program of the family is important in God's Plan because the way the family is put together by God, one family member can have a a very negative impact on everyone else. So we already read this this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. And by the way, an idol is not just in the Old Testament times. It would have been something they made out of wood or stone or clay and they could actually see it or hold it. But you come in in the New Testament and Paul talks about idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. Anything I cherish or want more than God is an idol. And it can even be a good thing. But if I'm cherishing it and wanting it more than I want God, then it is an idol. I talked to a young man, very strong in the faith. He was trained by his parents, very strong in the word. Went to a Christian college, but very, uh, how do I want to say it? Well, he came to me, and nobody in this church, don't panic, okay? You guys look like you were sweating over there. Don't worry, it's nobody here. Don't worry, Matthew, I got you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell anyone it's you, okay? It's nobody here, but this young man uh, contacted me. Well, actually, it was a friend of my son, Nathan, uh, And so he actually came over to our house and he was just distraught uh, in tears uh, because his girlfriend had broken up with him. And he thought she was going to be the one he would spend the rest of his life with. But spending some time with him and talking to him, learning that he's always had a girlfriend. He's never been without a girlfriend. We learn and he agreed that he had made an idol out of. Relationships. A good desire, right? It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. That's a God-given desire. 
to be with someone. But he didn't want to live without having a girlfriend. He wasn't suicidal, but I mean, in the course of his life, he didn't, he would always have a girlfriend because he didn't want to be without a girlfriend. And so we learned that he needed to put God first. Uh, And we talked about how, you know, we believe in providence and this is no accident. And perhaps God's trying to get your attention. Maybe God wants you all to himself for a while. So even good things can become idols if we want them more than we want God. Because this passage described God as what? What's the adjective? In verse 5? Jealous. Jealous. God doesn't want anything. And God won't allow anything in your life to take first place ahead of him. God is so serious about being worshipped And loved exclusively that he will punish those, this passage says, who refuse to obey him. It's talking about the unbeliever here. And it says he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. I'm in verse 5 again. And on children's children, third and fourth generations. What does that mean? Well, we know from other passages like Deuteronomy 24 and Ezekiel 18. That God judges us for our sin individually. You won't be judged for the sins that your parents or grandparents have committed. And everybody goes, what if my kids were to be judged by God for my sin? I wouldn't be good. But what Moses is saying here. And remember, when this was written, these families lived together, maybe three, even four generations together. That's another thing to keep in mind. So if somebody sinned and God had to deal with that sin, it could have a negative impact that would last a long time. And sometimes innocent people suffer because of the sins of others. And he says here, and as we're thinking through this principle with the generations, that innocent people could suffer because of a poor choice or decision by another family member. And sometimes those decisions can reverberate for many generations. But look at the good news in verse six. But I'm tempted to say that's a nice big but, but I'm not going to say that because that would be inappropriate. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Godly ancestors can also have an impact, a positive impact, a godly impact that can be felt for generations to come. The way we raise our children, the way we conduct ourselves in marriage, the way we conduct ourselves in other relationships, making godly choices, chasing after spiritual things. Following God's plan for family and relationships in the scriptures can have godly impact. That's one of my prayers for my own family. I was raised uh, with eight siblings, and I'm the only believer. You know, and I love my family. Love them. Love them dearly. In fact, we're closer today than we've ever been. But I'm excited because I have a wife and I have kids who know the Lord. And I pray that their kids 
you know, and my daughter's husband knows the Lord. And I pray that their kids, send me some grandkids, Lord, please. I pray that their kids, I'm so ready for grandkids. I pray their kids would come to know the Lord. And if they're going to spend any time with me, they're going to hear about the Lord. So, not just visiting the sin, but God can visit the blessings. We don't merely live for ourselves and our families, do we? The choices we make have impact on everyone in that home. We need to be very mindful of that, right? But the really good news is, as believers and followers of Jesus, we're also in the family of God. And when you're in the family of God, you have all the grace you need. You have all the mercy you need. You have all the help and instruction that you need to be God's kind of person. And just let me encourage you today. If you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a son, if you're a daughter, if you're a brother, if you're a sister, if you're a grandmother, if you're a grandfather, if you're a boyfriend, if you're a girlfriend, we all have the same goal to be God's kind of person. And, you know, we can do that with the Lord. We can do that even if the person that we're with or the people or the family we're with aren't on the same page with that godly pursuit. That, yeah, we'd like to have a a better spouse. Yeah, we'd like to have less problems with our children right now. Yes, we'd love to be married and we're single. But even more than that, a higher pursuit is to be God's kind of person right where he has you right now today. And to nurture that hunger and thirst for the Lord. Not being consumed by maybe what you think is lacking in whatever that relationship may be. Fully equipped by God's grace to be God's kind of husband, God's kind of wife, God's kind of child, God's kind of boyfriend, girlfriend. We can do that because he has given us help and mercy and grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you first and foremost for Jesus Christ who has brought us into your family. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, We know that we are now children of God, your children. And we need to let that sink in. As a father, as a mother loves their child, so you love us because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. And Father, I know that many of us struggle with being discontent and dissatisfied with the relationship that we either have or Or discontent because we don't have. But Father, my prayer is that we would nurture and work on the relationship that's the most important, our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Father, we know that if we strengthen our walk with you, we're going to be a better husband. If we strengthen our walk with you, we'll be a better wife. If we strengthen our walk with you, we'll be a better son or daughter or brother or sister. And if we strengthen our walk with you and we make a commitment to store up treasures in heaven and, as Paul told the Colossians, to set our mind on things above, 
that many of the aches and pains that we feel because of disappointments and dissatisfactions in relationships, they may not totally disappear, but a lot of those aches and pains dissolve. As we look to grace, as we look to the cross, as we look to Christ, as we see that the scriptures testify that you have said, never will I leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And the writer of the Hebrews there also says, then why should I be afraid of anything? So, Father, I just pray that our deepest desire would be to be your kind of people. First Peter chapter 1 says, we are a people for your own possession. That you possess us. That you own us. That's why you're jealous. And may we remember that too when we leave here today. Are we provoking your jealousy by holding on to idols? Things that we cherish, that we long for. Things that just preoccupy our thinking. And not just outwardly things. It could be money. It could be you know, beauty. It could be any of those things. But sometimes we turn idols, we turn into idols things like acceptance. We can turn security into an idol. We can turn being loved, being respected. I hear that all the time. She doesn't respect me and I'm sick of it. Perhaps respect has become an idol. That we're demanding that respect or that security or that love before we fulfill our responsibility to that person. But the scriptures are clear. That you, by your grace, by your grace, by your undeserved favor, you empower us to fulfill our duties and relationships regardless of what we receive back. And when we do that, it's an act of worship. It's an act of pleasing worship to you when we fulfill our duties in family relationships regardless of what comes in return. So, Father, that's my prayer. Is that we would be so drowning in grace that we become content, that we become joyful, that we become sacrificial, that we become giving. And we take note of those family members that you and your divine providence have placed us with. And look for ways to serve and to minister and to love. And being driven and motivated by being pleasing to you. The Apostle John wrote, we love because you first loved us. So Father, help us over the next many weeks as we continue to see what you have to say from your word about marriage and family. Help us to maybe clarify some of our thinking. Sift through our hearts. Smash those idols that we might have. And uh, re-energize us with a hunger and a thirst uh, to be pleasing to you. So, Father, we thank you for our families. Thank you for our parents, for our spouses, for our siblings, for our children, for our grandchildren. They're exactly what we need because you are the one that has given them to us. So we rejoice 
And we pray that you would help us to be your kind of people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. Don't forget, there is an article in the back, uh, Encouraging Counsel for Single People. And then join us upstairs for some tailgating uh, snacks. And uh, hope you have a blessed, restful day.